Why don't some large countries just print a little bit of money and buy Bitcoin and stick it on their reserves, for example? And if you, if you were to see like uh, those cracks in the dam start to appear and you, you start to see that happening, that's potentially a really explosive moment. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since way back in early 2017. And the Nano S I bought back then, yep, I'm still using that bad boy now. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only buying. I have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we are in a bull market. And you know what? I just don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'm a hodler. You're a hodler, right? Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Compass Mining. And you know what? They are not just a sponsor. I am also a customer of theirs, and I am now mining Bitcoin. And you know what? I've been mining for three months now. I've already paid off one of my S19s, and I'm close to paying off the second one. It is so good to be back mining. And you know what? I just really love these guys. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin with Compass. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they will do everything else for you. If you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up is BlockFi, and you can now earn a $250 bonus in Bitcoin when you sign up with BlockFi, as they have recently launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa signature card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, the BlockFi Rewards credit card is the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every card purchase and there is no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. You can also earn 2% in Bitcoin on every purchase over $50,000 of annual spend and you can also get 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. But please do make sure you check out the terms for this. Now, if you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to blockfi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash P-E-T-E-R. Hi, Lynn. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, very excited to be traveling again soon. I go to Miami next Sunday, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, okay, as ever, there's loads to talk about. I've got so many notes this week. Lots to talk to you about. Uh, I want to talk to you about volcano bonds at some point because uh, I've got so many questions that you probably have better answers for me. But can we start on currencies? Because I've been tracking regularly over the last year what's been hap happening with the Turkish lira. And uh, also my brother raised to me that uh, Hungary is having issues with its currency this morning. Um, so are we potentially going to be seeing more currencies collapsing? H how much are you tracking the various currencies around the world right now? Uh, so I, I track about 30 of them probably. Uh, not every single one. For example, I don't track Hungary very closely. Uh, Turkey is one I have been tracking. And the issue that you that you see generally in a lot of these emerging markets that have currency issues is that they have not enough foreign exchange reserves compared to their dollar-denominated debts. And the difference between Turkey and Argentina is that Argentina, most of that debt is on the sovereign level. Uh, the private sector is actually relatively unlevered, uh, whereas Turkey, it's the opposite. So the sovereign is actually pretty unlevered, uh, but it's a, it's a big uh, corporate debt problem. And so they have a lot of U.S. dollar financing. Uh, and a lot of it's you know connected to European banks. Uh, and also because they 
they don't really have independent central banking, right? So, so the leader keeps firing the head of the central bank. Um, and so they're basically not having kind of independent experts try to quell that inflation. Uh, it's unclear if that would even help, right? I mean, there, you know, it's, it's not always helpful, but basically there's, there's multiple problems there. And so Turkey's been on my list of like uh, bottom ranked currencies for a while. And a couple of times it looked like they might have stabilized it and turned around, but then they go ahead and break again. Uh, and so Turkey, Turkey is at risk of a, you know ongoing inflationary problem and currency devaluation problem. And the thing is, you know, they 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 have good underlying fundamentals. I mean, they've they've you know they're a strong manufacturing base. They obviously have great geography. Uh, they have good demographic trends uh, compared to say Europe, for example. So they have a lot going for them, but they have clearly some dysfunction there that's really hurting their currency. And this. This generally goes in cycles. So every time the dollar has a strong cycle, so it had a strong cycle in the 1980s, it had another strong cycle in the late 90s, and then it's been in this third cycle for the past five years or so. And every time it's in one of those cycles, it usually breaks certain emerging markets. So in the 80s, it was Latin American countries. Uh, in the late 90s, it was the Asian financial crisis and Russia. Uh, and then this this latest one is more spread out. So it's 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 Argentina again. It's Turkey. It's 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 Lebanon. It's a bunch of these countries with no with no specific uh, geographical kind of descriptor. Right, but but why why sorry why specifically is that happening to these specific countries? Sorry, I don't really understand. So it, it like again, it depends on the specific one, but generally they are ones that that did not invest very well, um, and so they did not build up sufficient foreign exchange reserves. Uh, okay. They build up. They build up too much dollar-denominated debt, um, and then they're and then usually have some sort of political dysfunction, right? So Argentina and Turkey, very different political environments, but neither of them could be considered a particularly well-oiled machine at the moment. Uh, you know, whereas right now, for example, you know, Southeast Asia is not really having major currency issues at the moment, right? So they they have their own political issues, uh, but they they didn't really run into the specific problem right now of having too much dollar-denominated debt. Uh, compared to their reserves and, and other types of, of issues like that. Right, okay. So this is tied to the dollar itself? Partially. Partially. The dollar is a catalyst. Um, and mm. so basically, when you take on dollar-dominated debt, uh, if that dollar weakens, uh, that's good. Because you just, you know, it's it's like if I took out a mortgage in pesos and then the peso goes down, right, that's good for me. Um, uh, but if I take out a mortgage in pesos and the peso doubles compared to the dollar, uh, well, my income is is still the same in dollars. I have a problem, and so that's that's what corporations and governments do in emerging markets. Um, and so, if the dollar strengthens, that's generally kind of like quantitative tightening into a recession, right? So instead of instead of them having easy monetary policy, their central banks are trying to tighten to stabilize their currency, and they have liabilities that they can't print away, and so they they kind of fall into a spiral. Right, but this is Turkey also printing money like other governments are printing money, which is driving their own inflation. Yes, they have very, very strong money supply growth at the current time. That that that's been a big contributor, um, and it's they don't really have their their budget deficit under control. Uh, but again, they don't have a lot of like they stored up government debt. Uh, it's, it's it's really that their issues more in the corporate sector. Uh, but yes, overall you have rapid money supply growth. And then rapid money, and then rapid price increases, and then you don't really have positive real rates either. So there's less incentive for people to want to save or for foreigners to want to come and backstop the currency. See, what amazed me with Turkey is that they were targeting now—is it they're targeting five percent inflation? So their target is actually still what we would consider very high here. Well, yeah, I mean, right now they have they have well into the double-digit inflation. So for them, five percent would be a huge improvement compared to what they are now. So if anything, it's a somewhat realistic. Attempt rather than saying we want zero inflation from double digits, uh, but clearly they want it directionally lower. But yeah, it's funny. Even five percent would be very very high. Now the difference is if they have five percent inflation, you know their rates wouldn't be zero like we have in, in say the United States and the UK. So you'd have a different environment there. Um, but yeah, you still have high inflation. Uh, wild. Okay, so what's going on with the bond market? Um, I was reading something at the FT this morning, something by Daniel Fuss, the chairman of Loomis. He was saying, it scares me when I see what is given up in terms of natural prudence and caution. We'll have to wait, wait and see how things play out, but the reach for yield has overridden the fear factor. I was also talking to Greg Force recently, and he said that there's no logical reason for people to be buying bonds now. The yields are 
one was it one point four percent on U.S. Treasuries? Yet with an inflation rate of six point two percent, you're essentially negative yielding, close to five percent. So he said anyone buying these is a moron. But the reality is, some people are mandated to. So are people just having to buy something they know that is negative yielding? Uh, pretty much. I think there's a variety of reasons, and this is this has been one of my core themes going into this year is the idea of financial oppression. So high inflation. Uh, but not correspondingly high interest rates. And I often use that comparison to the 1940s that we discussed before, because that was the big difference in the 40s and the 70s, is that you know in the 70s you had high inflation, but you had high rates as well, whereas in the 40s you had high inflation without high rates. Right. Because a lot of the current situation looks like the 40s, we're basically at a financially repressed environment. So we have this high inflation rate, but central banks are still holding their short, their short interest rates low, at zero, roughly. Uh, and then long duration rates that you know they buy a lot of those bonds to take off excess supply from the market uh, they create collateral shortages um, and so you have this situation of you know positive yield curves in many environments but very very low suppressed well below the, the inflation rate and the interesting thing is you even see junk bonds on average now have a negative real yield uh, which is like you know I think it might be the first time in, in modern history where you're not even getting fully compensated. Now, some of this is because of mandates. There are large pools of capital that have to buy bonds. They're regulated too. And then also, I mean, there are still institutions that believe it'll be transitory uh, and that believe that it'll, that it'll kind of normalize. Then you have retirees and things like that, that they're not mandated to own bonds, but they would, you know, maybe they're 80 years old and they would feel uncomfortable being 100% in equities uh, and be exposed to that volatility. So they'd rather have part of the portfolio lose money slowly then have 100% of it in equity. So it's, it's across the board, different reasons. But I would say, yeah, we're certainly in a, a period of financial oppression where bonds are, are probably going to have negative real yields for, for most of the time going forward for quite a while. So I was reading this morning uh, in Bloomberg that Morgan Stanley was saying that you should be staying away from US stocks and bonds next year and seek out better returns in Europe and Japan. Like, like I'm assuming we're in a very unique time where this, like, this, the hunt for yield uh, against the backdrop of high inflation is making the jobs of these people super difficult. Like, What other options do people have? So it depends on the pool of capital. For example, there were regulations that made money market funds hold more treasuries uh, rather than corporate paper. And that's an example of kind of shoveling people into treasuries. Um, and so we also see that banks, because they're not really lending too much, um, they've been buying treasuries. They've been, they've been net buyers of treasuries on average. Um, and then also you have you know insurance funds, for example, have to hold a lot of their uh, uh, float. They're you know, basically they collect premiums and then they pay out claims and they hold a permanent float. So depending on the insurance company, generally billions or, or tens of billions of dollars of investable assets. Uh, and they basically get to earn the income from that, but they have to keep it super safe. Um, and so some, some insurance companies are 100% bonds um, and they, you know, they might do mostly government bonds, but then also some municipal bonds and some corporate bonds. And then you have a handful of them that can put some of it into equity. So for example, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company does that. I also know that uh, Cincinnati Financial, for example, does that. There are some insurance companies that, that venture out. We've also seen actually a trend of, of some insurance companies buying Bitcoin. That's been, that's been one of NYDIG's uh, big, big kind of uh, approaches. Uh, but overall, insurance companies are very, very bond heavy by because they have to. They have to, they have to match those they have to have basically low volatility and match their liabilities uh, to their expected payouts. Um, so a lot of this is is mandated. But then you see, you know, there are pools of capital that have some more flexibility, and then they they go out on the risk curve trying to get more yield, and that you know that does come with risk. And so, for example, pension funds they target like seven or eight percent returns, which is hard to do when when you know historically they've been bond heavy portfolios, and bonds used to yield. You know, five, six percent. So you had bonds, you had equities, and you you could you know you could make eight, nine, ten percent. Um, but now with bonds so low, they've been allocating elsewhere. Uh, so they go into uh, you know uh, private equity. They go into some leveraged things. We saw, for example, that California's uh, pension they actually levered up a little bit. Uh, you know, they they basically levered up five percent of the portfolio to buy some of their riskier assets. Uh, they kind of increased their risky exposure, and that's an example of these pools of capital that have some flexibility being pushed out on the on the risk curve. Because instead of just having some of their portfolio in, in super safe assets, they increasingly want to go into these other areas because they have certain targets that they have to reach. And so it's a really problematic environment. It's kind of like when you, when you squeeze all the juice out of the orange, we, we've, we've propped up asset prices so high 
that now we're starting to see kind of kind of improper behavior as people would say, well, I can't own bonds, so I have to own riskier things. And then they they deal with that volatility. What what are those riskier things though? They're not just like riskier bonds in you know other countries like South American countries. Are there are these other assets? Are these corporate investments? There's yeah, there's different types. So one is the simplest one is simply that they own more equities, right? So they they just have exposure to equities, which of course can can have large drawdowns, um, you know, compared to bonds. Then the other options are they can go into private equity, uh, so less liquid investments, things that they can't necessarily cash out uh, uh, quickly, uh, but they expect to do good returns over 10 years, which they might or may not get. Uh, then they can also get into corporate financing. So in addition to just buying some, say, safe corporate bonds, they can also go into like funding bank loans and, and other types of, of financing for firms that are you know might not be investment grade, so junk bonds essentially and junk junk loans. Um, uh, then they can go into like levered products where you, you borrow a little bit, but then you, you, you lend at a higher rate, uh, with some credit risk. Uh, they, they can buy emerging market bonds as well. So they could, that's a, that's a source of higher yield, uh, with, with more risk. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of just those different types of things. So either, either loans, uh, equities, um, uh, or, or just, you know, different types of riskier bonds. And that, that's the overall risk is that they, they go into things that have more probability of, of permanent capital loss in a nominal sense, uh, and also more volatility, so they can have a 20% downturn in a portfolio that is supposed to be pretty safe. So you can imagine, for example, an 80-year-old might not want to be 100% in equities. Uh, they might not want to be exposed to the possibility of a 40% downturn in a year. Um, and, and traditionally, they've been they've been advised to have more bonds exposure. Uh, but with bonds being such a bad investment, they they find themselves between a rock and a hard place, and then they often want to buy, you know, more equities. And so I, I think it makes sense in some ways, but it does come with with risk. But can, can they buy Bitcoin? Yeah, they can buy Bitcoin, uh, and that's something I've been advising since 2020. That basically that people have different numbers for how much Bitcoin's right for them, but zero is not the right number for most people anymore. Um, and so for obviously some people, super high conviction, they don't want to own anything other than Bitcoin. Um, and they're, and they're willing to accept, you know, crazy drawdowns and, and crazy, you know, doublings and triplings in price. Um, whereas obviously other investors, maybe less conviction or less volatility tolerance, uh, for them, it's, it's putting Bitcoin as some non-zero position in their assets. So they might take some of their bonds and put it in Bitcoin. So even if you have part of your bo- part of your portfolio is a melting low volatility ice cube, you have this other part that that over over the next five years, hopefully rapidly appreciating in price and kind of balancing some of that out. So you have kind of that mix of low volatility without necessarily losing value. So there are different strategies like that. Uh, I do think more of them should probably turn to Bitcoin. We've seen some pensions get into Bitcoin. Uh, but they've been they've been somewhat slow. Uh, they've they've been they preferred I guess more levered kind of Wall Street products than Bitcoin so far. But I do think overall the Bitcoin would be a better choice. But what about volcano bonds? Well, I mean, th- yeah. What did you make of that? Well, I think it's I, so they're they're basically doing the kind of like the Michael Saylor playbook for a country, mm. right? So so they're issuing debt. Uh, my understanding is in dollars and using that to buy Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin mining equipment. Um, so if, if that pays off, that could be tremendous, right? Uh, I don't know what the yields will be. I haven't looked into the full details. Uh, I think they're, they're, they're doing it partially over liquid. Six and a half percent. Six and a half percent. Okay. Yeah. That's what they're offering. And so, yeah, basically that, that's classic for emerging markets. And it's tricky because, you know, their, their normal debt is, is not really considered investment grade, which is the case for many kind of, you know, smaller, uh, emerging market type of countries. Um, and so, you know, this one is obviously, it can be, it's, it's more backed by, by clearly what you're, what they're investing into. Um, so overall, I think it's constructive. I, I think it's a smart, it's a pretty smart idea, um, and it's you know it's one of those things where if if Bitcoin goes up a lot in price and if they're if they bring in the right expertise to to you know have effective rates of return on their mining equipment uh, you know in in that environment that could work out really well for them. You know my understanding is that obviously geothermal is very attractive energy uh, to use. Um, the climate is not super ideal. Uh, for for Bitcoin miners, um, and so overall, you, you generally would want to have experts there that make sure that it that it makes financial sense at the end of the day. Uh, you know, when you when you take into account the construction costs, uh, you know, the the expected return on investment for the miners, uh, the the low energy combined with the fact that you know it is hot and humid, 
Um, so overall, I, I'm again, m- like most things out of El Salvador, I'm always like, I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm hopeful for that. Uh, I'm bullish on that. Uh, but there are risks. As I remember, I could be, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I saw it. It's a 6.5%. Uh, you call it a coupon, right? Yes. I like that. Um, and I think there's a five-year lockup. And what they said they were going to do is they were going to spend half of it on Bitcoin. And my assumption is the rest is used for other projects, maybe mining. But if if they're buying uh, f- half a billion dollars of Bitcoin with a five-year lockup, I, I guess their thesis is in five years' time, Bitcoin will be worth more. And therefore, if the debt's denominated in dollars, then if Bitcoin does a 5x, I mean... That's not going to be it's like there's little risk to them, but I think it feels like they're playing the Bitcoin continues to go up in price game. That every cycle will continue to see a multiple X increase. That's similar to how Sailor structured his capital structure, uh, and so they did a couple rounds in MicroStrategy. And the first rounds were like convertible, so they're super low interest rates, but then they can dilute the equity. Uh, and then I believe the final bond round they did was was basically. Uh, I think it was something like six percent. Basically, it was it was a bond that had a pretty high yield, um, and the ex- expectation was, you know, if Bitcoin goes up substantially over the next five to seven years, it more than compensates for a six percent up, you know, cost. And they, you know, their 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 lockup period, like their duration of those bonds, is it varies a little bit, but it was I think like five to seven years. Uh, and then they sw- switched to issuing equity uh, in order to buy more Bitcoin. So the fact that El Salvador is kind of doing a similar timeline, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoin investors say, for example, that you know, uh, you know, kind of five years is probably an ideal timeline where you have high probability of getting returns out of it. Historically, you know, anyone who invested for four years uh, made money, uh, usually less, but that's kind of you know, if, if you invested for three or four years, you you made money. Um, even if you bought it at major tops, for example. Um, now that's not, it's one of those classic, you know, disclaimers, like the past is no guarantee of the future. So there, you know, there, there's no kind of guarantee it has to do that for the next four or five years. Um, but overall, because he's, you know, locking in that longer term debt, it is a smart thesis if someone's super high conviction on Bitcoin, which obviously uh, El Salvador's president is. So with that five-year lockup, uh, or referring specifically to Sailor, does he will he have to sell the Bitcoin at some point to pay the bondholders? Not necessarily. So if so, if Bitcoin stays, if it goes up or stays roughly where it is, um, the most likely bonds would be fine refinanced, right? So when the bonds okay. come due, you just issue another bond offering to cover them. The only time where it so it gets messy is if let's say Bitcoin does go down quite a bit. Right over five years, so some sort of catastrophic outcome for Bitcoin, uh, and Bitcoin's down and down in price, and the market is spooked by that and doesn't really want to issue, doesn't really want to finance those bonds anymore, doesn't want to refinance them, uh, and so it's possible that that uh, the company would have to issue equity uh, in order to kind of cover its expenses, or uh, it could potentially sell some of its Bitcoin. Uh, so generally, in a good environment, the answer is no. Something would probably have to not have worked out very well. Okay, so so even with El Salvador, they would constantly look to refinance these bonds. And I think they've talked about potentially issuing 10 bonds, you know, $10 billion bonds over a certain period. Uh, I guess the game theory is if, like, if this proves to be correct, other people will start issuing Bitcoin bonds. Is there any risk, do you see any risk here that there would be too many people trying to enter the Bitcoin market to issue bonds? Well, I mean, ent- so enter the Bitcoin market, like buy Bitcoin by issuing bonds? No, uh, issuing bonds to buy Bitcoin. Is there is there any kind of like systematic risk we build up with this? If it gets big enough, yes. So so one of my concerns that I've been watching, more so than that type of bond, is the collateralized Bitcoin lending. Uh, and so far, that's a small percentage as far as I you know can kind of piece together from some public numbers of, say, you know, Bitcoin's realized cap, for example. Um, now the issue is if that if that amount of debt gets super high, if that becomes super common to do, everybody everybody kind of takes out loans against their Bitcoin. Then the issue is that everybody has kind of a liquidation point around the same level, right? So let's say they like thirty percent loan to value is is common, right? So let's say Bitcoin has one of its gigantic drawdowns and it goes down seventy percent. 
But then it triggers the fact that you know so many people have these collateralized loans where Bitcoin loses 70% of its value, is subject to liquidation, and then you can have a self-fulfilling loop where more Bitcoin keeps getting liquidated in order to finance these debts, and that causes more entities to have to liquidate. Uh, and because the debt is is too high relative to the amount. Now I think we're a long way off from that, um, but that's that's a risk. Now it's a little bit less risky with bonds because if they're non-callable, if they're basically just they have a fixed term that goes out years, and they're all going to be issued at different times, so they're going to be staggered in different ways. Uh, you know, I, I I think that's normal. Kind of like how, you know, there's a lot of debt tied to real estate. And it's one of those things where it can, you know, because real estate is pretty low volatility, it, it can withstand quite a bit of debt connected to it. Uh, now, some places do become excessive. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, China's an obvious example, but also parts of Australia, parts of Canada, parts of Europe, um, and then and then lately parts of the U.S. Uh, become rather excessive with with how like they the valuations become propped up and then there's a lot of debt tied to that so if those valuations ever go down that becomes a structural problem for that that country's gdp uh now again bitcoin is a long way off from that i mean if you add up all the debt out there that exists uh that is that is in some way used to buy bitcoin that's still a very very small number in the grand scheme of things uh so i, I think that process probably has a much longer runway to go um before i'd be concerned about that just to just so I can understand a little bit more about how this works. So if they issue this billion dollar um, bond and it has a six point five percent coupon, that's sixty five million dollars. My math is correct. Um, is that something that's paid annually? So they essentially have to generate sixty five million dollars uh, to pay off the to pay the bondholders annually. So it depends on how that bond is 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 contracted, right? So uh, you know, basically, I could have read up more on it um, if I knew we were going to go into detail. Sorry. But essent- but essentially, you know, no. But essentially, the common thing is is say payable twice a year. Okay. So so generally, they would pay sixty five million a year, uh, spread out in two payments. That'd be common. Now theirs could have different terms. Uh, generally, some short duration bonds they don't pay interest. They instead just you know they they basically issued it at you know blow face value and then pay out face value by the end. Uh, whereas these longer ones normally do have have interest payments. Uh, so probably twice a year. Um, and yeah, they'd have to have they have to have dollars to cover that. Now they could they could issue more debt to finance that, but then it depends on how much the market is willing to take before they consider it a major credit risk, right? So if they were to keep increasing their debt faster than they're getting results, the market might balk at that. Um, uh, but also, I mean, they do have dollars uh, and they do have incoming, you know, they do have uh, you know, basically activities that they can draw from. So yes, but they have to make sure that they can cover those interest payments. So the play here, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm inc- incorrect, but yeah, they take the uh, issue a billion dollar bond. Uh, they spy f- half a billion dollars of Bitcoin of which they hope or you know, predict over the next five years that might itself do a five x or something or other, which gives them you know two point five billion dollars, let's say, of Bitcoin. The other half a billion, say, they spend that on mining infrastructure, and as long as, long as that generates sixty five million dollars a year of profits, that pays the bondholders. And then come you know five years time, they could refinance the 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 bond and continue to do that. as long as they can continually pay that sixty five million a year. Yet they're set on the backdrop of this ever growing value of bitcoin so it seems quite smart really as long as bitcoin continues to go up forever it's it's a very similar play to what what a lot of entities do with real estate where you never sell the real estate you just keep refinancing it over time as it as it goes up in value um and bitcoin is basically a more volatile version of that obviously it's got less track record 13 years um but the potential gains if you're right are massive and this is this is kind of the game theory of of say different countries where El Salvador has less to lose in, in some sense. They, they, you know, they basically are, ha, have already have economic issues. Uh, you know, there's a variety of problems there that, that they're trying to solve. Um, and so if, you know, if they're right about this, um, that really moves the needle for them. Uh, you know, if, yep. if, they, if they issue dollar-based liabilities and they buy Bitcoin, and if they start cutting down remittance costs, you know, with their, with their whole kind of Bitcoin legal tender laws, and if they do attract more capital and more people that want to go there, um, that could be a huge boon. That could be a giant turnaround. Um, so, 
you know, Bitcoin doesn't even have to go up 5x in order for that to pay off. If it, if it doubles over five years, uh, that would still pay off uh, as long as mm. it goes up more more than than six or six and a half percent, whatever the number is. Let's say we, we want it to go up more than 10 percent a year for the next five years. Uh, that should have covered itself. Um, and of course, if it goes up 5x or 10x, that's a huge game changer for them, especially compared to other countries in the region. And basically, you know, they're, they're peer countries. Yeah, so the only risk to them, like you say, is a, is a collapse in the price whereby they couldn't ref and if they couldn't refinance the bond, is that is that a potential? And and at that point, do they have to do they then have to sell their Bitcoin to pay out the bondholders? Like, what happens when a bond can't be refinanced? Well, so one option is is they default, which which is yeah. you know they they just say we can't pay you back. Um, generally, with with countries, there's like restructurings or. They, you know, they'd have to sell their Bitcoin, sell other assets. They might have to sell an interest. Like, let's say they, I don't know, you know, if they have that state-owned energy company, I don't know the, the exact legal structure. But for example, you could sell, you could privatize that, right? So you could sell, you could sell that, raise capital, pay off the bonds. Um, so there's a variety of ways that they could finance it. Um, and and generally, you want to avoid that situation because you don't want to, you don't want to have to sell something at an inopportune time. You never want to have to be forced to sell something because then you're price insensitive seller. Right, you just accept whatever valuation you can get. Um, if Bitcoin's down, they might not want not want to sell when it's down, but they might have to. Um, and and so yeah, that's generally a situation to avoid. But you have the com- you have that kind of the combination outcome of either defaults or selling valuable assets in order to cover liabilities. See, this could this could uh, this could inspire other countries to see the same do the same, especially in the region. Could, could, you know, I know uh, for example. Uh, Paraguay is very interested in uh, using their hydro dams to mine Bitcoin. But other countries in the region could see this and say, hold on a second, we can do this. We can issue similar bonds. And if this becomes something that a lot of other countries start doing, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because it takes so much Bitcoin off the market, then the thesis is proved correct. It's, yeah, it's also, I mean, that some people have been talking about that you know, why don't some large countries just print a little bit of money and buy Bitcoin and stick it on their reserves, for example? Uh, and if you, if you were to see like uh, that, that those cracks in the dam start to appear and you, you start to see that happening, that's that's a potentially a really explosive moment where you, you could have you could have, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of, of, of you know, different types of liabilities issued in order to buy Bitcoin, which which then is, is so big for the market that's still kind of small. Uh, and we still see. I mean, even even though right now, for example, as we talk, Bitcoin is in somewhat of a correction. We still see that the exchange balance of Bitcoin is hitting like multi-year lows, um, and it's just because you know there's there's not a lot more being created. Obviously, uh, it, it's pretty late in its distribution schedule, uh, and uh, there's this increasing tendency for strong hand people to come in and buy it and put it in a cold storage, whether it's like retail hodlers. Or it's these institutions that say, "Hey, we have this five-year view. We're going to buy Bitcoin and just kind of stick it away." Um, and so, yeah, if you start to see that on a national level more, that's kind of the, I guess, the early signs of kind of a hyper-Bitcoinization, or basically that, mm. that Bitcoin Bitcoin quickly ascends at least to the say, the the kind of the scope of gold where it becomes an actual like recognized international reserve asset, right? So right now it's not there yet. Uh, you know, most countries don't take that seriously as a reserve asset, um, but it, the next level up is kind of that that gold-like level where you're worth several trillion dollars and that you become commonly held in in reserves. Well, it's the it's what Pierre Rochard calls the speculative attack, in that you yeah. you know, buy, print, borrow uh, uh, sovereign currencies to to buy Bitcoin. Um, and it feels a bit like to me, to, yeah, Lynn, you can probably predict this better than I am, but if El Salvador was to do this and then other countries look at doing this, the bond rates on the, the Bitcoin bonds could actually start going higher. And, and, and could this be a scenario where it's almost like inverse to the uh, to like US uh, treasuries in that we're seeing lower and lower rates on like US bonds and that Bitcoin bonds could go higher and higher because they're more reliable? Well, it depends. I mean, generally... If if a bond is considered safe, uh, you know its yields oh, should be pretty, rate. You're pretty low. Now, for example, like let's say El Salvador's Bitcoin goes up a lot, and then they refinance this 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 amount of debt in the future, they could potentially get a lower rate because they're you know they they now they have a lot more collateral backing up that loan. The alternative is that they could keep the rate roughly the same, but it, it issue a lot more bonds. Um, and so far, you know we've. If you look at kind of the catalog of who's issued bonds, 
you know, MicroStrategy has been the obvious example. We just saw Marathon, the uh, you know, I believe mm. they're the lar- the largest Bitcoin miner. Uh, you know, they already they already actually bought Bitcoin on the open market, and now they they issued more. Uh, they issued debt in order to uh, basically combination of buy Bitcoin, buy miners, just kind of general expenses. Uh, and and they actually discussed this on the Bitcoin Mining Council, uh, you know, the, the prior kind of um, live stream they had, where where a couple a couple of the the miners talked about that, basically doing the Sailor playbook uh, on their own on their own balance sheets. So it's, you know, you don't really see that among gold miners, for example. They they don't like issue bonds to buy more gold. They sell the gold that they get. Whereas an interesting thing that we're seeing in the mining space is that they're not really selling the Bitcoin that they're mining anymore. At least a lot of the ones in North America, they're just hodling it on their balance sheet. And then some of them are also going a step further and actually issuing various types of liabilities to buy more. Then you see El Salvador do it. And so generally, it's 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 companies or countries that have kind of high conviction. And that don't feel they have a lot of career risk for doing it, right? So, so Sailor owns a large percentage of his company, especially the voting rights. Uh, miners, obviously, because their main purpose is to own Bitcoin, they feel they can do it. Um, El Salvador, they feel it. I guess he feels like he's, he's in a tight spot. The country, they want to do something big rather than kind of these incremental changes. Uh, so he's kind of going for it. I think the reason you see it slow among other countries or corporations is that there's career risk, right? So there's not a lot of gain for for the you know the person in the treasury uh, of that company that you know if they get that right, uh, you know at the size they would do it, they probably wouldn't you know they'd get congratulated, but it wouldn't be like it, it changes their career. Whereas if they're wrong, they lose their job, and so there's there's that career risk, and that's why you generally see more bureaucratic institutions move slower. Whereas these smaller, more periphery entities are able to just kind of just you know one decision maker just kind of makes the call and they just kind of push forward with it. Yes, fascinating. Uh, I sometimes wonder if uh, our beloved Satoshi is around and watching all this and uh, admiring what's been happening because I, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have predicted that we would have had these huge mining operations and then governments issuing bonds to create mining operations. Like how this has evolved, I don't know. It fascinates me. I don't know if you were uh, equally fascinated by it. Oh, definitely. And I mean, I think it's, it's funny because, you know, we have. Hal Finney wrote about this back in like, you know, was it 2010, 2011? He, he kind of imagined how big it could get. He was he was one of the more vocal people describing how big it could get. And so I think he'd be maybe less surprised. Um, and 100 million a coin, I think he said, didn't he? Yeah. And we also talked about just like if banks start using it as their reserve asset and then, and, you know, basically he predicted kind of the financialization of Bitcoin. Um, and the quote that always sticks out to me from Satoshi is that he said he's sure that in 20 years it would either have tremendous volume or no volume. Like basically, so you should it's, probably buy some just in case. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's basically his overall point was that that kind of like he's not sure it would work out, but it's like either gonna it's either gonna be a tremendous failure or it's gonna be a tremendous success. Like is is there's not a lot of middle ground in his view. Uh, and so far, obviously, 13 years into that 20-year vision, uh, it's it's on the tremendous success path, right? So, so he's he's been he's been correct about that. Yeah, and I don't I don't see us going backwards from here. I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I just it feels like we've gone too far now. It feels like we have the regulatory protection in the in the necessary markets. Not enough here in in the UK or Europe. Unfortunately, we we've just not been uh, forward thinking enough. And I think you, the UK specifically missed out on an opportunity with Brexit to be a leader in this, which is a, which is a shame. Uh, and I think Europe is being massively left behind by El Salvador as well as the US. But I feel like the US is is very forward thinking with this. I feel like I feel like if you have the protection, the regulatory protection of the US, then you kind of have most of the uh, rest of the Western world. Uh, but that's, that's amazing. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. And this show is brought to you by Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with Casa's multi-sig wallet, you can take custody of Bitcoin, but only move by signing transactions from multiple wallets. 
ones that you get to distribute into different locations, which is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more, you can reach out to me over email or drop me a DM on Twitter. I've been a customer for over a year and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, next up, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now the football season started. It's been a strange start to the season. Tottenham started well, but obviously they fell apart. Typical Tottenham stuff and Liverpool are crushing it, but it's a bit tied up there. Other teams are doing very well. Now listen, with Sportsbet, you've got everything covered. Not only do they cover football, but they support tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even have esports. And for new customers, there is always a range of promotions available. If you want to find out more, then please head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Io. Next up, we have Extras Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for my Bitcoin. Now, as you know, UX is super important to me. So when the Extras team reached out to me, I spent some time playing with the app. And you know what? They crushed it. The experience is amazing, which is why I'm happy to recommend it to you, my friends and my family. Now, the Exodus desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address known that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. So make sure you check it out yourself at Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app store. Also, I need to talk to you about inflation. I know we discussed this in the spaces recently, but uh, not everybody would have joined us for that. Uh, and we saw the very surprise figures coming out at 6.2%. Since then, uh, we've had the UK announced figures of 4.2%. Uh, still can't seem to be able to explain to my friends why this is an issue. Uh, and I keep, I've been telling them for quite a long time and uh, trying to get them to listen to the podcast. But what were your reactions when you saw 6.2% inflation? Uh, so... Kind of that it was like in line with expectations, uh, maybe slightly on the higher end. Because uh, my overall window that I was expecting was I wasn't sure if it was going to be higher than the prior number. Uh, my only conviction was that it would be around that that height so that it, it wouldn't really be going down uh, yet. Um, and so there's, there was kind of that big range where nothing would have surprised me. If it was over 6.5%, I probably would have been surprised. It's also partially that you were – you're not just expecting inflation, you're also expecting how they're going to measure inflation, right? So for example, a big component is the housing component. That That's what's driving up a lot of the 6.2% figure that we're seeing in the US now. So earlier in the year, when we were getting you know, 4 or 5%, um, housing was a big drag on that. And even though housing prices have gone up a lot, owner's equivalent rent, which is actually what's in the inflation basket, had not yet come up yet. It was, it was still a very low number. So that was actually pulling the average down. Uh, but now we're starting to see that, that those figures are, are pushing it up. So rents, rents uh, in, the, in the basket are going up and owner's equivalent rent. Now, they're still behind what you'd, what you'd actually expect if you look at what housing prices did and if you look at uh, like data aggregators for what rent prices are actually doing. So these are actually still understated. Um, so when you when you're kind of anticipating inflation print, partially you're you're trying to figure out what's inflation going to be, and then two you're you're saying what is the what is the government's measure of that inflation going to be? Which is the that's why I don't try to predict it too specifically. I just know a range that it's going to be in, and so generally we can look at at least another quarter or two and say that because of the real estate situation, we're probably going to have sticky high inflation for at least that those two quarters. And then, you know, as we move forward, we'll get more and more visibility, right? So it's possible that could eventually top out for a period of time and kind of, you know, relax or something else could happen. We could have, an, we could have another energy crisis. We could have some sort of issue like that that gives us another like higher. But at least with the vis- visibility that we have, while it's hard to say the exact number, it's rather straightforward to say that, that inflation is likely to be elevated and sticky for at least two more quarters. Okay, could it go higher? I mean, look, one of the criticisms uh, that we heard from the likes of Preston Pish, our, our friend, and uh, Greg Foss, is that this really, like, 6.2% is like the no- lowest number they could get to based on how they measure inflation. But, I mean, most people are saying that everything they're buying, whether it's petrol or houses, everything is m- much higher than 6.2%. So uh, there is the suspicion that uh, inflation is much higher when... Uh, and do you know what? Just to add into that, who was it I saw recently said that the, re- the strange thing about inflation is like inflation is very personal because it depends what you're spending money on. Like the government measures it against a basket of assets, but the things that you buy might be a lot higher. 
But do you, do you think we could be going higher than 6.2%? I do, yeah. Basically, especially if 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 it shows up in in that in the owner's equivalent rent, which is like a thir- third of the basket. Um, so, at, I mean, as a data point, invitation homes uh, is like the largest homeowner in the U.S. It's like a publicly traded, you know, business that owns a lot of single family homes, and they raised rents by like eleven percent uh, year over year on average. Wow. And that's that they have this you know big nationwide you know complex of homes. And that's not showing up yet in the CPI. They're, you know, the, the CPI, when they look at rent, you know, they're calling it something like three or four percent. They're not calling it eleven percent. Um, and so that still has, I think, a runway to go. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see seven or eight percent official CPI prints. Now, again, I, I wow. don't have a, and I don't have a specific number because you're, you're again, you're partially, you're, you're trying to estimate the quality with which they're going to measure the number rather than just predicting the number. Um, and so that's hard to say what they're, what they're actually going to report that the number is. But based on the next two quarters of housing growth, that's certainly possible, unless it's offset by something else. If we have some sort of you know, collapse in auto prices or something like that that kind of offsets those, those housing uh, prices going up, uh, you know, that could maybe keep it in the you know, 5 to 6% range. Uh, but so it, there's a couple variables involved and levers to do. Uh, but the the high conviction thing I would stick to is that that housing inflation is going to at least keep it sticky around roughly where it is uh, or higher uh, for the next two quarters, and then and then we'll need more visibility and data points to look out the next couple quarters. What 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 kind of number would shock you? I mean, no specific number. No- so. I guess the high end right now, so so broad money supply growth in the United States is currently 13% year over year, roughly. Okay. Uh, and, and so that that's you can briefly have price increases go up faster than money supply growth, um, not really in a sustained way. As you saw that briefly in the 70s, um, you didn't really see that in the 40s. Uh, so so generally, 13% is kind of my rough end high estimate. Now it doesn't mean again you you, you could touch it for a quarter. Uh, it's hard to sustain above that. Um, so generally when you start to get into the, if, if you were to breach maybe 10% kind of official reported inflation, I, I'd find that pretty surprising at the current time. Uh, but but overall, I mean, my base case is just sticky and high. Uh, so yeah. it, it's one of those things. And it also, a, a lot of people have hubris in that they, they try to, to measure it exactly or say exactly what it's going to be. And of course, that's you're combining multiple factors here. So one is you're combining actual things we can measure, like like you know part of why I expected high inflation is because I already saw this big increase in the money supply, and was was pretty high, was pretty sure that that was going to trickle into price increases, which is what what we're seeing now. So there's that; it's somewhat measurable. But then you also have you know psychological things, right? So so how how people's tendencies change, and then you have details. Like, is the winter going to be cold or warm? Because that can affect energy prices, which then can affect mm-hmm. everything else. So, so there's there's multiple variables that I wouldn't even try to fully guess and be like, okay, it's going to be exactly eight point two percent, give or take point one. Like that's too that's too specific. But I can yeah. look at it and say, okay, here's the money supply growth rate. Here's the historical relationship between money supply growth and price increases. Then we have this big range around the price increases because we actually have to determine how accurately they're, they're going to measure that, which I don't have a, a super ton of faith in. Um, so yeah, basically, when you start getting the double digits, I'd be surprised. At least, at least in the current environment, if we see an acceleration of money supply growth, then you you, you know that that changes that calculus. So if we d- if we were to see say plus ten percent inflation, I, I think ten percent as a marker would be considered very high. What kind of reaction do you expect to see? Do you do you think that would uh, force the hand of the Fed? Do you think they would have to change things? Do you think we would see interest rates, you know, raise? I think you would see more reaction. Yes. Um, now the the problem is they can't. You know, in order to give real yields in that environment, you'd have to raise rates to like eleven percent, um, mm-hmm. and and that's not going to happen. So you know, they've been talking about potentially accelerating their taper, right? So currently, the Fed's plan is that from now until about mid twenty twenty. Uh, no, 2022, they're going to be reducing their rate of asset purchases uh, to eventually maybe get to zero, um, and then from there they're talking. Do about you believe them? So I I I do believe that they're going to try that. Yes. Um, now they they left it open because they actually they have a minimum that they're going to buy, 
but they actually don't have a hard cap. If there's any moment of dysfunction in the treasury market, if there's any sort of illiquidity problems, they can just buy more that week, right? So, so they're actually not fully committed to that plan. That's kind of their that they basically are saying that they're they're committing to a lower minimum uh, that they're going to buy over, over the period of time. But I do think that they're going to slow down their rate of asset purchases. There are various signs that uh, basically the banks are already so stuffed full of reserves, it's it's you know it's not doing a ton anyway. And because of certain collateral shortages, there's this demand for T-bills. Again, it actually goes back to the regulation. There's all this regulation that basically forces entities to own T-bills. Um, and so basically, I do think that you're going to see a reduction in asset purchases combined with the fact that the Treasury is going to be probably reducing its average maturity of bonds. So financing more of its debt with shorter duration Treasuries, because that's where the demand is. Um, and so I do think they can do that for quite a while. Now, I think the, the bigger question is how long can they do that, right? So I, I, I have mm-hmm. little doubt that they can do it for a period of time. Uh, I, have, I have doubts that they can sustain that. So I, I think eventually you would get another kind of slowdown and you'd have another round of QE. Uh, and then during while this all plays out, I don't think rates are going to get anywhere near being positive real rates, meaning that even if they start to say, okay, we're, you know, this inflation is a problem now, we're getting 8 9 10%. Or say it's sticky around six percent. They say, you know what, we're going to start raising rates by a quarter. You know, we're going to go up 0.25 percent. Uh, you know, at a time that just doesn't cut it, right? So uh, I think around the margins, you'll see directionally trying to tighten, um, but it's just not necessarily sufficient to to actually make that money worth any, like worth worth holding. Do you think anyone has a harder job than Jerome Powell right now? <sighs> I mean, I, I would. I always say I wouldn't want the job. I mean, that I'd have to say I, there, there's obviously manual jobs that are much, much harder than that. But yeah, from in a, in a financial standpoint, it's 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 choosing various ways to lose. He's got there's no way to win, yeah. and you're just trying you're just trying to lose slowly. Yeah. And so I always I'm surprised. I don't know why he wants the you know I don't know why he wants another term because he's already well, he just rich. Got it. Yeah, he just got announced to have it, or you know, and he's already rich. And I don't know why he doesn't want to just go work for Wall Street again and just get out of this. I, I don't know why. I don't know. He's going to get blamed for everything. Yeah. I mean, you know, I always point out that so back in the Greenspan era in the 90s and the early 2000s, I, I think the Fed had meaningfully different decisions they could make, that they that they didn't have to go down the route they did at all, and they did. Uh, they, they kept cutting interest rates. They kept, you know, basically helping Wall Street wherever they could. And that they've essentially trapped themselves because now there's so much debt that they can't ever realistically raise rates, uh, you know, anytime soon without a major currency devaluation happening first. Um, and so now it's it's just you know around the margins they can make mistakes, but really they're just so trapped into a corner that I don't even blame them anymore. In some ways, it's mm-hmm. like that they, they've you know the people that are running it now. I'm like I it's just it's a mess. So you know I, I wouldn't want that job. Well, a lot of Bitcoiners talk about ending the Fed. Like, have you ever gamed that through? Is that do you think it's possible to not have the Fed? Like, realistically? Yeah, there have been. I mean, in the United States, we went through periods of time where we didn't have a central bank. The Fed is our third okay. central bank. Um, and okay, so, I didn't know that. Yeah, basically, we, we when we were founded, we had one, and it had an expiring charter, and they let it expire. Uh, then, then they had another one that that one expired as well. And the the current version, the Fed, uh, was created in 1913. Um, so so d- during the like the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, there was no central bank. And essentially, how that works is that there's you know banks would have like in that environment, they'd have gold as their reserves, or at least a lot of their reserves, and they'd issue liabilities against those reserves. Um, and you know if they go bankrupt, they go bankrupt, and you'd have to right. you'd have to be very careful about institutions that you put your money in um uh because you can lose it uh but on the other hand you don't really have that kind of that's that central control essentially you know in most markets like basically pricing is really important we, we generally you know we would balk at say if, if the treasury department set the prices of turkeys right we'd be like no we we want supply and demand to determine the price of turkeys uh but basically in this modern central banking era they control the price of money which is interesting because it's one of the most universal prices, right? It, they they set short-term interest rates, the override market forces, and they determine what what they believe interest rates should be. Uh, whereas in that more free banking type of model, you'd have different banks 
set different interest rates um, and they'd have different levels of risk. And we kind of see an, a microcosm of this in the Bitcoin space where you have these different kind of, you know, quote unquote, mm. Bitcoin banks. And some of them are perceived as as riskier than others. And they have different rates compared to others. And if you and they're not FDIC insured. So if, if you if you deposit assets and then that that entity goes as financial problems, you might not get those back or not get all of them back. Um, and so you generally have a similar environment there where, you know, this one bank might have a bad reputation. They might they might have had a history of, of, of issues in the past. They might be they might be luring customers in with higher deposit rates that might or might not work out. And then you have you might have very conservative institutions that are that are much more uh, you know uh, perceived as having a, a lower probability of having any sort of problem. So yeah, I, I do I do think that there are structures that work without a central bank. Okay, so it's just a reputation market. The banks, it's free banking. You have a reputation market similar to similar to what you have with bonds, right? I mean, you know, you, the different rates of return depending on whether you believe that country can, you know, how much of a risk that country is. You get a higher rate with uh, Argentina than you would get with the US. Do you prefer that model? I, I think longer term, yeah, that's an ideal model. I mean, I, I think pref- uh, preferably you'd have institutions set interest rates rather than a central entity. Even even yeah. just the United States. I mean, we're you know we're a country of of 330 million people, um, and and the right rate for the South might not be the right rate for the North, for example, right? Um, and so there 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 could be regional differences, let alone individual banking differences, um, for what the what the natural interest rate should be in that market. Um, and so I, I think that's something to be aware of. Uh, and so overall, that you know that's kind of. It it kind of comes directly tied with sound money because the current system, the the way the whole fiat system works, is kind of inherently tied to central banking. It's hard you can't really separate the two. But yeah, if you mm-hmm. if you had a, if you had an environment where the actual reserves were some sort of sound asset, whether it's gold in the past, whether it's Bitcoin in the future, whatever the case may be, then you can make that that free banking model work because their reserves are not tied. They're not they're not also liabilities of any other entity. Now they can they can kind of do sharing so they can a bank in addition to holding gold can hold treasury bonds as collateral they could hold another bank's uh, uh, say liabilities as collateral so you have to be careful of things like that but as long as it, they're that the base of it is some sort of you know uh, you know kind of bare asset like gold or Bitcoin then it's workable. Yeah, I guess why that's when we have Bitcoin. We don't really need a central bank, <laughs> which is great. Okay, we should probably finish talking about Bitcoin. Um, so we uh, set a new whole time high recently. We tagged sixty nine thousand, and we dropped down again. And uh, this uh, second leg of the bull market just doesn't seem to be getting going. Uh, seeing different people have different perspectives on this. Um, what what do you, what's your take at the moment with Bitcoin, Lynn? So overall, I, I would say this recent leg up kind of looks like the leg up we had from July. So we, you know, it went it, back then. It was all the way down to thirty thousand, and then it popped to over fifty thousand, and then it corrected down to forty thousand, and then it popped all the way to well over sixty thousand to new highs, and then it's since corrected down to the fifties. So so far, that's actually pretty symmetrical. Uh, that's you, you generally don't see bull markets go straight up. So if it were to stabilize in the mid fifties, then start heading higher. That's actually super healthy. That's really healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the big concern you'd have is if you start breaking down below the mid fifties. Um, then you're then you're in more of a consolidation pattern. So that that's not necessarily super bullish over the say the the short term or the intermediate term. Um, you know you, you've you've had people on your program that are like on chain and a- analysts. Uh, so they they cover that space more than me. But I do pay attention to some of that. Some of those are a little bit bearish, but I would say the majority of the ones I look at are still bullish. Um, so overall, basically, like we mentioned before, the number of Bitcoin on exchanges keeps reaching new lows. Uh, you have mm. to go back all, all the way more than three years to find a period. And that this is unlike any prior cycle. This is kind of the big wild card that makes this cycle so unknowable, is that in, in all those previous cycles, the number of Bitcoin on exchanges kept going up. At most, you'd have a few months where it went down. Uh, it just structurally went up. Um, because you had the growth of exchanges, you had a lot of a lot of new supply coming to market because you still had a pretty you know kind of inflationary distribution schedule back then. But over time, as the halvings keep happening and as just the exchange industries matured, now you have a structurally declining amount of Bitcoin on exchanges, um, and so that 
over the long run is is structurally bullish. So I'm I'm still bullish overall. Um, but yeah, basically we want to we want to kind of watch certain levels and see if we're still making higher highs and higher lows, and if we overall have kind of intermediate term momentum, um, or if we have to you know maybe think out another year before we start to see kind of you know kind of crazy upside action. I try to avoid these specific price targets that people make, and they have like a specific model, and they say this is what Bitcoin has to reach by this time. Uh, you know, I when I've when I've kind of been asked to give one, I, I do give price targets. So I, you know, I called for the the trillion dollar market cap back when it was like a third of a trillion. We got that, and then I've been eventually looking for a hundred thousand, uh, either maybe by by this year or or kind of the first half of 2022. And I still think it's at least for the 2022 version. I think that's still certainly on the table as a, as a viable option. Um, and I think, but the the longer term picture uh, is what I'm focusing on. All right, Lim, I think we can finish up here. Uh, always amazing to talk to you and really looking forward to seeing you next because we're going to record a show in person, which is going to be entirely different because we've never got to do that, which is always my preferred way. I think we should do a review of the year, talk about what we think is going to happen next year. But I'm really looking forward to that. I've loved every interview we've done this year. So thank you. And I will see you very soon. Thanks for having me. And yeah, we ran into some technical issues this time, but you know, next time we'll be in person. So you know, we'll have a, a much smoother one. So hopefully people enjoy this. Okay, well, I will see you soon then. Take care. Okay, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, you want to reach out to me, the best thing to do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And if you want to support the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Okay, see you all very, very soon.